the Egyptian History Podcast by Dominic Perry. Episode 14, The Joy of Ray's Heart. Welcome back. Last time, we visited with three prominent courtiers who lived and worked in the reign of the King Neusere. Ta Shepses of Abusir, Ni Ankh Kanum, and Kanum Hotep of Zakara served the young king as trusted confidants and grooms, ensuring that King Neusere lived up to the standards of a divine monarch. Episode 13 was the first episode in which we have not advanced the narrative, instead focusing on a specific aspect of this historical period. Now, let's get back into our story with part two of the reign of Neusere. When Neusere came to the throne, around the age of 18, he may have felt anxious that his life was not going to be a long one. His brother, Ra Neferef, had died after just three years on the throne, failing to even complete the burial monument of their mutual father, Nefer-Irkare Kakai. Neusere's brother, his father, his grandfather, and great-grandfather could claim about 41 years of royal authority between them. That's four reigns within as many decades, and the most recent had ended very prematurely. If the young man felt that the gods may have withdrawn their favour from his brother, and planned to do the same to him, I can't say that I'd blame him. The first order of business was the burial of Ra Neferef. The pyramid that had been commissioned at Abu Sir was nowhere near completed, and was essentially composed of a single level of stone. Neusere couldn't reasonably expect to complete a full pyramid to its original design, and so it was hastily finished as a large square mastaba with an attached mortuary temple to receive the king's offerings. It wasn't grand, and it probably wasn't satisfactory, but there wasn't much other choice. Finishing the tomb of one's predecessor was the most important duty an Egyptian king undertook after he claimed the throne. Neusere was doubly saddled with the burden of completing not just his brother's tomb, but his father's as well. Ra Neferef had been on the throne for such a short period that even Nefer-Irkare Kakai's monument was not yet finished. It was operational in the sense that the tomb was sealed, and the mortuary temple could receive offerings, but Neusere was obligated to add some finishing touches to the facilities, and make sure it was worthy of a king. So for the first few months of his reign, the necropolis of Abusir was a hive of activity, as artisans and labourers worked on temples and pyramids, while royal architects began the planning process for the new tomb that was going to be required by Neusere. Neusere's pyramid was to be 50 metres or so tall, a far cry from the 140 metre high structures of the 4th dynasty. No 5th dynasty pyramid ever broke the 60 metre mark. Neusere's pyramid was constructed of the same locally sourced limestone used for many of these monuments. The compact but well-designed monument still stands today. In fact, if you visit the Egyptian History Podcast on Facebook, you will see the Pyramid of Neusere dominating the banner photograph. 
This was taken by yours truly in January, when I visited the Saqqara and Abusia regions, going somewhat ballistic with the camera in the process. The Abusia field is closed for excavations most of the year, but I managed to get this rather pleasing picture out of my visit. It captures what I think is the essential connection between Abusia, Saqqara, and Giza. From the mounds at which I took the photo, the Abusir pyramids line up beautifully with the Giza monuments in the distance. If you turn around, you will then see the pyramids of Userkath and Netjeriket Joza, and far off in the distance, on a clear day, you will catch a glimpse of Sneferu's two pyramids at Dashur. The whole spread of pyramids and cemeteries come together beautifully in a visually harmonious way. I can tell you, there is nothing better than wandering through that area on a quiet day, with no sound but the wind and the crunch of your own footsteps in the sand. If you visit Egypt for yourself, I can tell you it is well worth walking from Abusir to Saqqara, rather than taking a tour bus. The peaceful walk is like a journey in time, one that can't be replicated in the air-conditioned comfort of modern technology. But I digress. Descending into Neusare's pyramid, one follows a narrow passageway leading underneath the core masonry. The corridor, which you enter from the north, as in almost every pyramid, bends slightly to the east as it progresses. It does this so that the entrance to the burial chamber, which is accessed from a small antechamber, is located directly beneath the apex of the pyramid. The Egyptians were very fond of synchronicity and exact placement of burial chambers within the pyramid structures. We assume that the placement was intended to aid the king's ascent to the heavens and his union with the sun god, but of course we don't know for sure. See, the pyramid chambers were still undecorated during this period, which has been the case for every pyramid since the reign of Sneferu. We are not sure why the pyramids do not feature artistic reliefs or writing in their chambers. A colleague of mine once suggested that the complexes may have been actually unfinished. But you'd think that going to all the effort of building these enormous tombs over the course of decades, that you'd at least make sure they had some essential spells and artistic works carved on the tomb walls, wouldn't you? I hope I'm not giving away spoilers when I say that before too long, this paradigm will be turned on its head. The ruler Userkaf will introduce the corpus of divine texts to his pyramid burial chamber, establishing what we know today as the pyramid texts. Outside the pyramid itself, Neusere further embellished the monuments of the royal necropolis when he commissioned the building of a magnificent new sun temple. The Sun Temple of Neusere, known by the name of Shesep Ibre, or the Joy of Ray's Heart, is one of only two sun temples discovered and excavated by Egyptologists. It is a magnificent structure, in which a causeway led from the riverbank up to a large rectangular court. Dominating the courtyard was an immense obelisk of granite, whose shape was considered to be an evocation of the sun's rays and light. Offerings would be made daily at the Sun Temple, and its administrators were responsible for a large flow of material goods 
that came into the temple before being passed on to the mortuary temples which were attached to the pyramids. Shesep Ibre was an elegant and well-designed monument. To the west of its walls, a large pit was dug for the burial of a wooden ship, just like at the Giza monuments and in the Mastaba of Tar Shepses. The wooden ships, which were replicas of the boat on which Ray traversed the sky, were more appropriately buried with the sun temples than the pyramids. The construction of the sun temples, as a space dedicated to Ray, made them the more logical choice of burial site than the pyramids, which focused on the king as a mortal human and as Horus incarnate. Neusere's reign was a long and stable one, thanks in part to the youth of the king when he ascended, and the fact that he managed to avoid the premature death of his elder brother Ranefereth. His rule was also aided by the careful guidance of a woman whom I have mentioned before, the second queen to go by the name Kentikaus. Kentikaus II was the wife of Nefer-ir-Kare Kakai, and in Neusere's youth she governed the land from the sidelines, helping the young king to establish himself on the throne and enact the most useful policies that he could. Like her earlier namesake, Kentikaus II never ruled as a king in her own right. Although in her tomb she was depicted bearing a uraeus, or serpent, on her forehead, and a crown in the shape of a vulture, her power was more on the backroom agenda side of things. Though it may offend our modern sensibilities of gender equality, the Egyptians did believe intrinsically in kingship as a male concept. There were ways around this, of course. After all, the king was a child, and it didn't really matter who was in control, as long as someone was. That's where Kentikaus stepped in, elegantly taking control of the court so completely that she received her own pyramid at Abu Sir. Before Kentikaus II, it had been extremely unusual for a queen to have a tomb that was not connected or incorporated into the funerary complex of her husband. Kentikaus I had her mastaba tomb set up near to the complex of her brother Menkaure, but stayed essentially within the boundaries of that complex. Kentikaus II was having none of that, and her tomb was established just to the south of the pyramid built by Nefer-ir-Kare. It stood apart from his tomb, with its own mortuary temple and enclosure wall. The inside of the temple was richly decorated with scenes of offering bearers coming from the royal estates, bringing food and beer for the queen's cult and the nourishment of her car. Though the artistic reliefs of the mortuary temple were badly damaged in later eras, they have survived in small fragments and come down to us through modern excavations. In one scene, the family of the king greet Kentikaus, though the king himself is absent. It is a universal feature of tombs not built for the kings that the ruler himself is absent as a figure. The reason for this is that if the king were to appear, he would naturally overshadow all other figures drawn into the scene. In a tomb in which the individual wishes to be the centre of attention, having the king present would force the tomb owner into a subordinate position in their own burial chamber. So Neusere's absence 
from the tomb of Kentikaus II was not a mark of disrespect, but in fact quite the opposite. By keeping his figure absent, the king ensured that his mother remained the most important feature of the tomb scenes. To add his own endorsement and care, the king did present his cartouches in one inscription, emphasising the connection between Kentikaus and her loving son. Kentikaus II did not outlive Neusere, and probably died sometime in his second decade. By this point, all the necessary work had been completed on her pyramid, as well as the pyramids of Ra-Neferef and nefer kakai Neusere thus entered his second decade with a greater confidence than he would have come into his first. Now into his late twenties, he could be confident that he had passed the serious danger zone of childhood and puberty, and could look forward to at least another decade of healthy, active rule. No plagues were ravaging the kingdom, the Nile harvest was acceptable, and the king was properly ensconced on the throne, attended to by the vizier Tarshepses, who was now his son-in-law. The land was wealthy enough for Neusere to commission two more monumental tombs at Abu Sir. These are known today as Pyramid Lepsius 24 and Lepsius 25, after the explorer who first documented their existence. 24 is dedicated to a wife of the king, probably named Reput Nebu, who took the role of head female in the family after the death of her mother-in-law, Kentikaus. I wonder if that was a happy day for her. After all, the royal mother had led the family as something of a matriarch for over a decade, which is a long time to be in someone's shadow. Not much more is known of Reput Nebu, except that she was buried a short distance from her husband, due to an increasing lack of space in the Abusia necropolis. By the time Neusere built his pyramid, he was the fourth king in a row to build on the plateau, and space was becoming short. Mastaba tombs for officials and family members had filled in the small valleys and depressions where pyramids could not be built with any stability, and by this point the necropolis was becoming a very crowded affair. With that in mind, it is surprising that late in his reign, Neusere decided to make a large-scale extension to the mortuary temple of Kentikaus II. This increased the visibility of the queen in the necropolis, and her prominence in the legacy of the family. Whatever his motivation for this, the result was twofold. Not only does the royal mother survive in the archaeological record, but the temple itself provides a great source of information about the cult practices used for Egyptian royalty. Papyrus fragments discovered in the temple of Kentikaus tell us that every second day, offerings were made to a statue image of the queen. The priests, known as the Chemnetcher, were involved in this cult, making offerings on behalf of her car, and ensuring that the divine statue of the queen was properly anointed and clothed. The offerings to the queen tell us the standard fare for a temple ritual. Bread, beer, and meat were offered in small amounts that were then distributed among the attendants for their own consumption. Linen also features prominently, used to clothe the statue, and subsequently given to personnel. Through this arrangement, the cult of the king or queen could be seen as a distribution point that contributed to the sustenance and nourishment of the people. In a way, the deceased ruler became a provider, both in life and death, 
contributing to the welfare of the people as long as his own car was fed and nourished in the afterlife. The symbiotic relationship between the living and the dead underlay all Egyptian attitudes to the world around them and their place in it. Because he was at the heart of the living realm, the Egyptian king was obviously at the heart of the afterlife. In the daily world, the palace and home of the king formed one of the core places where knowledge and insight into the mysteries of death were kept, as well as functioning as the administrative centre for the country. This is revealed most strongly in the tombs of officials from the 5th dynasty onwards. The owners, mostly high-ranking administrators, speak of rituals and processes by which they transformed from their earthly forms into a form of life known as an ak, which is a kind of spirit or divine being. To become an ak was to become truly valuable in the realm of the king in the afterlife. It was to possess hidden knowledge and secret power beyond the access of the ordinary. Naturally, the king remained as a central focus in this process. In the tomb of Ni Matre at Saqqara, the official had the following inscribed on the walls. The one whom the king loves is the lector priest that will enter my tomb to perform the ritual according to the secret writing which is his craft. The king commanded that every ritual by which one becomes an ark be done for me. A contemporary of Ni Matre, named T, had the following to say. Every worthy ritual by which one becomes an ark has been performed for me, being all that is to be done for a skilful being among the arks. I am initiated to every worthy rite by which one becomes an ark. The process of becoming an ark is lost to us today, but the recollections of it written by these officials tell us three things. Firstly, that it was done with the king's blessing and with his permission. Secondly, that a lector priest, a special type of priest responsible for sacred texts, was required for its performance. Thirdly, that the essence of the knowledge required to transform into an ark was contained not just in spells and incantations, but in writing itself. The language of hieroglyphs contained not just knowledge, but the hidden mysteries and magic of transformation. This isn't something Egyptologists have simply made up. An official named Ebi recorded in his tomb that he was made into an ark through ritual, and that he knew every secret magic of the residence. The residence was the heart of the royal administration, kind of like a palace with administrative departments attached. It was located at Memphis, and formed the absolute core of the king's administration. The knowledge kept within the residence was out of bounds to the vast majority of the population, and gaining access to the king and the religious texts contained within his home was a matter of immense prestige for an official. For Ebi, and a contemporary named Edu Seneni, who recorded that he knew every secret of hieroglyphs by which one becomes an ark, the access to religious writing formed the core of what made one these divine beings. To borrow a badly written but fairly familiar idea from the fourth Indiana Jones movie, the greatest treasure to these officials wasn't gold or simple material possessions, but access to knowledge and writing, 
To quote Indy, knowledge was their treasure. Cue spaceship and end credits. But seriously, I can't stress enough just how important it was in ancient Egypt to be one of the literate. And not just one of those people able to read and write, but one with access to the most secret and protected of religious texts. To be admitted to that social club was above and beyond all other honours or prestige. In the words of historian Harold M. Hayes, the deceased claims to know a text by which one can literally get into heaven. The reign of Neusere is roughly the period of time in which these concepts first begin to appear in the tombs of non-royal officials. I suspect that this is due to the expansion of mortuary temples and the establishment of the Sun Temples early in the 5th dynasty. When the Sun Temples came into being, they expanded the number of royal cult centres operated at any one time. This meant more personnel were needed to keep every temple operational. In order to fulfil this need, the kings would have had to increase the number of scribes working to teach children the nuances of hieroglyphics. Over the course of a couple generations, this would have greatly expanded the number of people able to read and write. Now while the proportion still remained around 5% of the population at most, the increased number of semi-literate people would have allowed those in the know to begin distinguishing themselves and setting up a hierarchy among the literate. In other words, when you have 10 people who can read and write, they are probably fairly equal among themselves. Expand that to 100, and the original 10 will start to present themselves as more select and superior than the newbies. Allow this process to sink in over a couple of generations, and the distinction between those who can read and write for administrative purposes, and those who can read and write but also have access to the divine secrets, will begin to emerge. I am of the opinion that this emergence in the 5th dynasty of people distinguishing themselves by their access to knowledge is the result of the increasing network of temples in the period. The more people you have working in divine institutions, the more likely you are to find those who distinguish themselves from the rest. The cultural and spiritual life of ancient Egypt is thus really emerging into the spotlight, and those with knowledge are in the vanguard of the group who are developing complex theologies and spiritual systems that will dominate Egypt for a millennia and more. The wealthy and the elite are beginning to develop their own identity, in which they too can achieve great prestige and spiritual potency in the afterlife. While they cannot hope to match the king, they can nevertheless transform into powerful divine beings with the potential to better their descendants' lives. The status of these individuals was proclaimed not just in their tombs, but on stelae, which are large stone slabs with rounded tops, carved with hieroglyphs and usually a representation of the owner. The stelae record the titles of the individual, as well as a couple of offering formulas which invoke the king and the gods as benefactors of the person's funerary cult. These small monuments reflect the elite's relatively minor status in the religious landscape, but the fact that they're allowed to make them at all reveals the way in which the kings are beginning to draw 
more and more connections between themselves and the elite in theological and religious terms. The king's generosity in allowing these monuments to be made, and even paying for them himself occasionally, enhanced the prestige of an individual and tied them to the king's patronage. It also contributed to the overall development of the elite as a distinct social group, with their own internal hierarchy and relationships to the royal household. This elite identity, or culture, will also bring with it some interesting developments in what might be called Egyptian philosophy. In the reign of Jedkare Izezi, next episode, a son of the king named Harjedef will lay out the first surviving example of a work that will come to shape elite behaviour and morality. Focusing his attention on the ideal behaviour of an individual among polite society, Harjedef's instructional writing will help to shape a peculiarly Egyptian form of philosophical discourse. He will be quoted by the most famous of the Egyptian sages, a man named Tahotep, and his manifesto on the means of attaining a good life will have lessons for us even today. Before we can reach that, we must first finish our discussion of the life of Neusere. Since the beginning of the 5th dynasty, no king had ruled long enough to merit the celebration of a said festival. The said festival, also known as the Hebsed, was the celebration of a king's 30th year on the throne. Every three years thereafter, another festival was celebrated. The said festival was an ancient and venerable tradition, but relatively uncommon in the annals of Egypt's history. Given the short life expectancy of the ancients, a king who ruled even 20 years was considered to have lived a good and full life. In his 30th year on the throne, around the age of 48, Neusere celebrated his first said festival. The celebrations were momentous, not just for the king who had survived the dangers of youth and emerged as a healthy and vigorous ruler, but a momentous occasion for the family itself. Of the 5th dynasty kings, Neusere is the first for whom we can be reasonably confident that a said festival was reached. Even Sahure, who had been such a shining pillar of accomplishments in life, had not reached this milestone. King Neusere had entered a very select group of monarchs, whose rule could be proclaimed as a true incarnation of the divine order. After all, to have survived this long was surely evidence of Ray's favour. His brother Ranefereth had lasted only two or three years, suggesting that the gods favoured Neusere to succeed their mutual father, Nefer-Irkare. Times were good for the aging king, and he could look back on a stable and satisfactory reign. He had contributed to the necropolis with the building of his own pyramid, and the enlargement of the complex built for his mother, Kentikaus. His rule had been strengthened by the introduction of new officials, and the marriage of his daughter, Kamerer-Nebti, to Tarshepsis of Abusir, had strengthened his own governing body. Neusere died around the age of 50 years old. He had ruled Egypt for approximately 32 years, and his legacy was a positive one, favoured by the gods, guided by his mother, and contributing magnificently to the splendour of the necropolis and its temples, 
he established himself as one of the great rulers of the dynasty. When the sun rose on the day following his death, Egypt was now ruled by his son, a man named Men Kauhor. For all that this king ruled up to seven years, he has left very little in the historical record by which we can characterize his personality. Small inscriptions and seals, found as far afield as the Sinai Peninsula, confirm his actual existence and that he patronized quarrying expeditions to this region. His most significant contribution, though, was that Menkauhor ended the practice of royal burials at the necropolis of Abu Sir, moving his burial tomb approximately one kilometer south to Saqqara. He commissioned a new pyramid near that of Userkaf and Netjeriket Djoza. It was a small pyramid, and was so dilapidated by the 20th century that it was lost for over 60 years, only being rediscovered by the Supreme Council of Antiquities in the year 2008. I have provided a link to a short BBC video regarding this discovery on the website. Menkauhor ruled for about seven years, and when he died, the throne passed to a man whose relationship with him is uncertain. A son or brother is the most likely. This man's name was Jed Kare. He is the seventh king of the fifth dynasty, and is one of its most interesting rulers. From Jed Kare's reign, we will learn more of the elite culture developing amongst officials. We will learn all the inner workings and developments of the sun temples, and we will see a large-scale reorganization of the necropolis and its administration. The fifth dynasty plows forward next episode, and as we reach the high watermark of its achievements, Egypt will enter into a new age, in which the seeds of the monarchy's destruction begin to take root. I am Dominic Perry, and this is the Egyptian History Podcast. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over 10 generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic era, then check out the Ancient World podcast. 
Available on all podcasting platforms or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.